The tragedies, I know the tragedies. History plays, if I know anything about the king, then I can remember the details of the history plays. The comedies, I have no idea what's going. All Shakespeare comedies are all the same to me. All end with a wedding. Yeah. There's going to be some cross-dressing. There's going to be some, someone falls in love with someone who they're not supposed to, but it turns out they're supposed to after all. Nothing's going to work out. And then Shakespeare, Shakespeare has some Duke shows up and goes like, all right, you marry you, you marry you, you marry you, the end, right? Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Nina? What, Doc? So, when we, uh, our very first episode, we talked about the trailer for The King, uh, this Netflix show, and I don't think we intended to talk about it. Yes. Well, we didn't know that it was a movie. I remember there was a moment when there was a moment of confusion. Is this a series or is this a movie? And we we literally could have been a mini series. Yeah. But it's a movie. At that time, I don't think at least I didn't intend that we would we would return to it. I just thought. Not this soon. Yeah, not this soon. We needed a palate cleanser Mm -hmm. after the last Movember movie and we needed a good movie to go out on. Yeah. And we needed to give Ben Mendelsohn, at least to you, a chance to redeem himself. Yeah. Because he's also in The King. Yes. Uh, it's um, Henry the Fourth. But yes. Uh, or Henry Bollinger. Isn't isn't that his name? Henry Bollinger? Yeah. Was that his historical yes. name? Do we, do we have to talk about Movember here? What went down with Movember? Uh, no. Nah, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> well, I guess you brought it up. <laughs> well. <laughs> you brought it up, so I guess we should. So, so if you're listening to this in... in as soon as it's released, you will note, looking at your calendar, it's not November anymore. Uh, that is Movember. And that is because, well, honestly, it's because we didn't time things out well. Uh, and this was supposed to drop, I think, a week ago uh, or so, and it didn't. But two things. Number one, Movember is not a real month. What? And two, if you are... How dare you? I know, How right? How dare you? Exactly. It's just... I know, mind blown. But two, if you are setting your own calendars by Movember, um, don't get get a real life. I mean, this is this is an educational medieval podcast. You really should move on with your life. But anyway, one of the most important conflicts between the Celtic Church of Ireland and the Roman Church, and really one of the two big issues that kept England, the English church, trying to figure out if they wanted to side with the Irish church or the Roman church, was how do you calculate the dating of Easter? And I think maybe mm-hmm. we will end up having a schism here in the podcast on how how one calculates the dating of Movember. Correct, yes. We'll, we'll come up with an algorithm and we'll keep it secret from the rest of Christendom. Good, good. And no one will ever know. Good. But yes... We're here to talk about The King, and it is on Netflix, and you can watch it. Yes. And, and it's it's really good. Right. Comparatively, it's really, really good. And on its own, it's really, really good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, too. I, I enjoyed it, too. So, And I didn't expect to. I kind of thought I wouldn't like it. But it did. So there you go. Yeah. Review done. Yes, there you go. End <laughs> of podcast. Goodbye. Thank you. Ending music. But no, this is based on Henry V, the... History, the shaped by William Shakespeare. Yeah, it's interesting. This is more so. Before I watched it, I heard the maybe maybe I read a review by someone saying this is not it's inter- entertaining but not really true to the medieval history. And when I watched it, 
as as a non-historian, but instead an expert in the fake stuff, uh, the the literature. Mm-hmm. Like I immediately was like, oh no no no, this is not a retelling of the historical events. This is a retelling of Shakespeare's Henry the. It, basically, it's three plays combined. The Henriad is that sometimes mm-hmm. called Henry the Fourth Part One, Henry the Fourth Part Two, and Henry the Fifth. The title character, the king mm-hmm. in this case, referring presumably to Henry the Fifth. Though there are other kings in it, so I guess you yes. could argue it's about others, but they, they're less major characters. So so in a way, this is more of a retelling of Shakespeare's retelling of the actual historical events. So we're getting pretty far removed from the history itself. Right. But this is this is a fictional telling of a real king. Yes. Henry V was a real guy. Henry IV was a real guy. Right. I think every character here is either a real person, like the Dauphin, who's played by... Daniel Radcliffe? Robert. Oh, no, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Oh, my God. We're going to get some emails. They, in my head, are the same actor because they're both actors who... Oh, my God. ...whom I hated, who have worked really hard at improving themselves in their craft, and they both have my my deep respect, much to my surprise. They were both in a Harry Potter movie, and one of them was Harry Potter, and the other one was a sparkly vampire. Wait, Robert Pattinson was in a Harry Potter movie? He was indeed. What was what was he? I assume he was a student of some kind. He was a student that died. Spoiler alert! Sorry for those of you who were dying to find out what happened in a Harry Potter movie. But yes, <laughs> he was indeed in a Harry Potter movie. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I did not know this. And, I learned. Something and my new. friends who are Harry Potter fans are going to be very mad at me when <laughs> when they hear this this episode, and they're going to pull me aside and say, Nina. We had you watch the Harry Potter movies. Why can't you remember the names of the if, Harry Potter movies? If you have watched? any complaints about this podcast, please tweet to us, care of Ben Mendelssohn's Twitter feed. <laughs> Cedric something there. I got the first name. Wait, that was Robert Pattinson? But anyway, that was Robert Pattinson. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. If that's if that turns mm-hmm. out not to be true, then you will look bad and I will not. So I'm, I'm going to... Well, you know, the thing is, is that... I am not on any internet social media thing, mm-hmm. so I don't care. That's awesome. But anyway, I know. It's wonderful. It's very freeing. But anyway, Shakespeare. Yes. Important things. Yeah. So, I mean, there's these three plays. And although Henry the Fourth, Part One and Part Two are ostensibly about Henry the Fourth, there are a lot of the, a lot of it has to do with his relationship with his son, who is Henry the Fifth. Yeah. But for our purposes, we're going to try to just call him Hal. He's often called Hal. Yes. And uh, we're going to call him Hal so that we don't get confused between Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth. So Henry the Fifth is Hal. And he's referred to as Hal in The King as well. Yeah, that's right. And so Shakespeare takes a lot of liberties, of course, with it, introduces a character who doesn't exactly exist in history. He's a major character in the early Henry plays, uh, the Henry the Fourths, gets developed into an even larger character here, and that is the character of Falstaff. Uh, Falstaff is kind mm-hmm. of based on a guy named John Oldcastle. He gets made into this played Falstaff. by Joel Edgerton. Yes, and uh, and that role really changes here. So, like, there are characters like that who are kind of like even the even the characters who Shakespeare makes up out of whole cloth, or or the film makes up out of whole cloth. They have clear, obvious analogs in history, right? So they're 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 mm-hmm. either a couple of real historical people compressed into one, or or something, or, or something along those lines. And we'll we'll get more into Falstaff's role mm-hmm. in a minute. But I, I did enjoy what Joel Edgerton brought to that character. I, I thought 
I thought, well, we'll we'll get into it in a little bit. But anyway. Anyway, so like one of the things that I think that we look at a lot when we're exam when we're talking about these things is when we look at Shakespeare, we think like this is classic literature, and so. I think there's a way that people might look at this and say like, well, this is not legitimate, right? Uh, because it's not historical mm-hmm. and it's different than the Shakespeare play. But A, Shakespeare's plays were different from the actual history. And B, you know, Shakespeare... Even though they were called histories. Yes, they were called histories. Well, I mean, they were fictionalized versions of history in the same way that this is, I guess. And, yeah. And B, they were really they were really the popular culture of the day. He became... Shakespeare got super rich off of plays like this. And so we think of him today as, uh, you know, something that you have to wear a tweed jacket and smoke a pipe uh, to discuss. But in, <laughs> you know, at the time, I mean, you could just be a groundling, get in and watch a play. It would be the barrier to entry was about the barrier of entry today to get into Netflix, right? To, you know, you pay, you pay, mm-hmm. you pay your, you pay your little bit of money and you get to see what, what they've got. Right. So in a way, I guess we could say that this is there's something very Shakespearean in I don't want to overstate this too much, but there's something very Shakespearean about just sort of taking this other work and saying, no, I'm going to do it this way. And Shakespeare does that, too. Like King Lear is based on a historical person, but he also is kind of clearly alluding to some other plays of King Lear. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't above rebooting or remaking someone else's work, uh, especially by a historical figure. Correct. Yeah. And I think what you were saying about gathering around in the day to see, to go to a theater, to see a play. I I think we still do that today. We just don't see a play. I mean, granted, seeing a play today is expensive, but we can gather around the television. We can gather around our phones. We can gather around our tablets and we can watch a movie. We can watch a YouTube video. Yeah. And we can discuss it with our friends, our family members, our loved ones afterward. Heck, I mean, this is what we're doing right now. We're talking about a Netflix movie that we saw and that we enjoyed. Yeah, and I think we're moving more to, this is a little aside, but I think we're moving more to this kind of model of, like, small movies can't make it in the theater anymore. It has to be an event movie. It has to be something that you're going to go pay 15 bucks a ticket per person, pay another 15 bucks for a humongous popcorn, you know, and by the time you're done with it, it's kind of costing you as much as it would go to see uh, an off-Broadway play. Yeah. Whereas Netflix is more of the groundlings, right? It's the, well, I paid my I yeah. paid my little bit of admission, my monthly subscription, so I'll watch what's there. It's pitched to me as well as to other people. Because it's an old cliche about Shakespeare's plays that there are a lot of jokes that are kind of crude and are aimed at the groundlings and a lot of references that are sort of maybe you need a little bit more education to get. But the truth is like, it isn't like you have to be some sort of, uh, you know, egghead to understand the King and to really enjoy it. I mean, this is, there's lots to enjoy here for someone who knows nothing about Henry V or Hal, as we're calling him and Shakespeare calls him and he's historically called, uh, we don't have to know anything about that to enjoy this. You could in fact have left this movie thinking Absolutely not. that this is not a historical person that's all made up and you could have enjoyed it all just as well, I think. Right. Yeah. You don't have to know anything about one Shakespeare, Henry V or anything. Right. To just sit down and say, hey, look, here's Timothy Chalamet. He's pretty cute. Let's watch this movie that he's now in. I mean, this kid, he's getting a lot of work. Yes. And he's going to get a lot of work after this. 
I mean, he's he's going to be Paul Atreides in Dune, for crying out loud. He is going to get a lot of work coming up here. So, no, you, you definitely don't have to know anything about Shakespeare or any of his plays to enjoy this movie. No, go ahead. What, what were you going to say? I, I was just gonna, I was just going to make a comment that I'm not so optimistic about Dune, but that's a whole other issue. I'm I'm never optimistic about <laughs> Dune. I've well, no, I I've never been optimistic about Dune, but I have optim- optimism about this kid's career. All right. But yeah, let's let's move into yeah you know, the two roles that we really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I think the role of Gascoigne and Falstaff, and right. I know you had things to say about Gascoigne. Yeah, I mean the there's this interesting historical question. Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, what I'm about to say now is a major spoiler for the end. Uh, it's a non-historical thing that happens. So if you don't want to hear it, stop listening now. As it turns out, Gascoigne has betrayed uh, Henry uh, Hal. Uh, and so he gets killed uh, in the end. He, Hal just like uh, straight up kills him mm-hmm. while he's getting dressed. Not before coronation, but uh, before the before his wedding. As a kind of wedding gift. It's the celebration. Yeah. As a kind of wedding gift to his it's bride. It's the celebration of returning from France. Yeah. By the way, I would like to see that as a new tradition that like before people get married, they <laughs> kill their they kill their wife's worst enemy uh, just as a kind of gift. You know, I think that would. Oh, I've got a list. Yeah, I, I've got a list at least a mile long. Don't get greedy. You get would... one engagement ring. You don't get a whole handful of engagement <laughs> hey, rings. You get one revenge killing. They can pick from anyone on that list. All right. Okay. That... I I'm just saying I've got I've got a an entire cadre of people. That's all I'm. So saying. this but is anyway. like the jeweler putting out a set of rings and and then you get to choose from yes. them. Right. Yes. Okay. I, I. It's like going to Tiffany. I can see that. Pick the one you like. Pick the one that speaks to you. Right. Is what I'm saying. But in fact, that that guy, he doesn't get killed. Like historically, he didn't. I mean, he died eventually. But not only wasn't he killed by Henry, he just sort of like leaves his administration, for lack of a better word. It, he very much leaves in a kind of, uh, to put it in modern terms, uh, I want to spend more time with my family, as the modern politicians yeah. would. Um, but there have yeah. been some people who've made, and I, frankly, I don't know enough about the historical sources to make my own uh, claim, but I would say that th- there is now a kind of movement to say, like, actually, in his case, maybe he legitimately was like, yeah, I just I don't want to do this anymore, uh, and he didn't get cast out. But uh, he does leave <laughs> the the ser- the immediate service of of uh, Hal, but he doesn't leave dead. Mm-hmm. He leaves quite alive and lives on a little bit. So yeah, it is a pretty ballsy, pardon the pun, move on Gascoigne's part to set this betrayal in motion. I mean, he's got, he, he does four things mm-hmm. that I identified to, to set the machinations of betrayal in motion. It's, it's first the, the tennis ball, which is kind of like that infamous incident mm-hmm. from the play, mm-hmm. um, which both in the play and in the movie, Hal kind of plays off as, Oh, what a nice gift from the Dauphin mm-hmm. when the Dauphin means it to be, or at least the expectation is that it's an, it's an insult. Right. This is a ball because you are a child or I'm expecting you to behave like a child. Mm-hmm. And then two, he, the, the Salic claim, is it, is it Salic claim? Yeah, I hadn't, you know, this is interesting. I yeah. hadn't gone back to look at how the betrayal, can, can you lay all this out? Because of course it's not revealed sure. till the end that okay. he's be- behind everything. And right. since it, that wasn't historically how it happened, I'm like, could you lay this out? So I'm. Sure. Okay. So the first is the tennis ball. Right. 
the tennis ball incident. The second is the Salic claim where, you know, the Bishop of Canterbury is standing mm -hmm. up and he's giving that really long, dry, winding speech about how England doesn't have a maternal claim. Like, if you're a male and you're a descendant of a, a female royal, you don't have a claim right. to property. But if you are French and you're a de descendant through... Uh, a female heir, then yes, you do have a claim. And Henry was of French origin, therefore he is somehow entitled to France. Right. It's a very backward. Yes, it's a very convoluted yeah, it, way. It's to really, describe. really hard. To, I had to look this up because when I read the play, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And this is in Shakespeare speak. I need to look this up. So it was extremely strange. And just a little aside, like those sorts of yeah. claims are made all the time in the Middle Ages. Yeah. And the in addition to that, they'll also do, sometimes they'll mix up, mix and match in like, well, so-and-so was, was my father's godson. So that means that, you know. Therefore right, I yes, own France. Right. That yeah. kind of thing. Yes. It's very, they, <laughs> yeah, they, they not just do biological descent, but also spiritual descent in terms of who's, who's godmother, who's, who's godfather, that kind of thing. And they would mix yeah. the biological and spiritual up to, to get the claim that they wanted very often. And I also, see. by the way, they yeah. use that for divorce, too. Sometimes if you want to get a, get a divorce, <laughs> you couldn't get a divorce, but you get an annulment. You go like, oh, we just discovered that if we calculate it this way, we're actually siblings, so we can't get married. So our marriage that we've had uh, now, right, now, it doesn't count for anything because if we mix and match this way, we're actually siblings, even though we are no way, no way related. Uh, I see. Okay. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's the second, that's the second uh, incident. The third is when he finds that assassin or he sets up that yes. assassin to murder Hal, mm -hmm. but he never does murder Hal. He just said, or he never does try to murder Hal. He just says, oh, we found this assassin and he conveniently happens to be in prison. Yes. And then the fourth is when he's betrayed by those nobles. The The nobles say, oh, we have... They conspire with the French to say, we're worried about Hal's mental health. Right. Right. He seems crazy. And then one of them happens to be Hal's cousin. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Hal, I think that's the final straw. And Hal has them beheaded. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, it's time to go to war. Yeah. So it's those four, the tennis ball, the salad right. claim, the assassin, and then the betrayal of his cousin and the other noble. And all those things get at like real conflicts like legal conflicts i mean so henry the fourth is really a usurper and so all of these claims yeah. are really complicated there there is a kind of nietzschean uh let me let me bring it down a little bit there's a kind of like i have i have power <laughs> sorry oh my goodness yeah, i almost went into philosophy there there's a kind of uh i have power and so i can take power element to all this which shakespeare kind of creates an apology for an apologia for in that he has the very famous St. Crispin's day speech and the St. Crispin's day, which is not in this movie. No. And when we were coming up to where it was going to be, I thought, uh, if I was a writer, there is no way I would put that I would put a version of that because that is maybe the, no, it is definitely the best part of Henry V And one of, you know, certainly in the top five, speeches that Shakespeare ever wrote for a character. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't try to challenge that. It's the, and if you don't know by that name, you might know it as the band of brothers speech, right? Band of brothers. And he yes. basically 
Henry comes out. They're against unbelievable odds. He gives a speech to all the commoners saying, we're a band of brothers. And there's all these noblemen who are back in England. They're going to know that they're not real men and they're not really my brothers because they didn't fight here with me. And we're all going to be brothers if mm-hmm. we fight here together. And there's a kind of real democratization there, right? And and where Shakespeare is sort of is suggesting Hal's not, I mean, Hal's line is not legitimate, perhaps it might seem, but he is maybe the tribune of the people or he's, he might be making the solid claim legally, but morally he's saying, no, we are English and therefore all of us, even to the poorest of the English, this is for us. Yeah. And we, we s- all hate the French equally. Right. And so the character Falstaff, yeah. who's this kind of comic character and a coward who gets cast out, he runs away from battle and he gets cast out by, uh, or by uh, Hal before the play Henry V occurs. He's kind of turned into this this voice of the wise old common soldier, right? And so Hal mm-hmm. is constantly given what sounds like prudent advice, but bad advice from the yeah. nobles. Like they're not made out mostly to be fools. Their advice is, seems prudent. Falstaff is both, they emphasize that he's a commoner and that he also has a lot of wisdom. And his wisdom comes not from being a Yoda type figure because he's not that. It comes from the kind of rough hewn, listen, I'm just a common man. Uh, and that's why I know that this is the way things are. Right. The common, there, there's strength and there's strength and and wisdom in just being a common Englishman. Yeah. And I, I really liked how Joel Edgerton portrayed Falstaff because he's it, it skirts a line between being both an audience surrogate which it wasn't entirely mm-hmm. but also being kind of this magnanimous I hate to think of it as like uh, being this mystical wizened old almost old fool role yeah because he, he you see him at the beginning he's dancing which I can watch Joel Edgerton dance around shirtless for hours I don't know about anyone else but um, he's dancing around and then he disappears for a good chunk of the movie before he reappears to help Hal with the, basically with the war with France. You know, you know, now that you, now that you've pointed that out, that's really interesting because yeah, he disappears during the events in the movie. He disappears during the events where he is a, an important character in the plays. And then when he falls out of the plays, yeah. he reappears in the movies as, as a, an important yeah. character. Yeah. And whenever he, whenever Hal goes to him for advice and says, hey, what do I do about, how do I execute this military action? And he kind of, his advice is kind of like, eh, do it, do this, do whatever. Yeah. And, and Hal's like, you're supposed to, you were my, you helped my father. You did X, Y, and Z. Why aren't you giving me better advice? (laughs) And it kind of, you know, it, it kind of breaks down that character from being this, you know, this this kind of revered character, this this person that that Hal kind of worshipped, or you, you get the feeling that he really worshipped yeah. uh, Falstaff in the beginning, and then it, it kind of breaks down toward the end, thinking, well, maybe he wasn't that great, or maybe his his greatness was, you know, years and years past, and those days are far behind him, and and Hal has outgrown the need for for Falstaff. Yeah, it- and I and I liked that. Yeah, the the what's interesting too is so Shakespeare presumably takes the role of Falstaff. He's taken a guy by the name of John 
uh, old castle. Well, historically what happens is during Henry, uh, during Hal's short reign, there's a point where he's got his old friend, John Oldcastle is now on the other side of religious controversy and they are truly old friends historically. And he has him burned at the stake. And so that then turns into Shakespeare. Shakespeare softens that a little bit by saying like, no, this figure, he just kind of casts out from his presence so he can no longer be around him. And then when we finally get to this movie, this is the full rehabilitation of John Oldcastle because because what happens to Falstaff is, of course, Falstaff dies, but he dies intentionally sacrificing himself for for Hal and for everyone else. Right. Because he's he's too noble to let someone else lead the doom charge. He's going to have to lead it himself. And that's really the only end for Falstaff, too. Yeah. So the 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 ruthlessness of Hal in real life, where he burns his friend, you know, at at the stake as a as a heretic, that ruthlessness then gets transformed, transferred over to to Gascoigne, where he's then where a guy who historically just left his administration, well, now he's going to be flat out killed as a wedding gift to his wife. <laughs> Very romantic. I, I still and personally think. killed, too, I might add. It's not like he has him killed. He yeah. flat out kills himself. So let's get into the themes. Mm-hmm. I, I identified at least two themes for this movie. Um, the first is war is a tool. Mm-hmm. Two sides of that. War is a tool, one for the people in power. Mm-hmm. And that's Henry IV. Hal's father, and eventually for Hal himself, and also for Charles VI, the French king, who you don't see up until the very end. Yeah. And also, war is a tool for the people around those in power. That's for Gascoigne, and also for the Dauphin. People use war to get what they want, and to hell with everyone around them. Yeah, I mean, we start with the Scottish Rebellion. Yeah. Uh, we have the Hotspur story. Mm-hmm. Which in this case ends with, uh, you know, a, a one-on-one battle between Hotspur and Hal, which of course Hotspur dies in that. Um, so we start off with that, but yeah. but that in there we begin with this idea that Henry, he's this kind of like, uh, uh, sorry, I should say Hal. Hal is transformed into this kind of would-be pacifist. He very, yeah. he very much has a, a, a war. Was it good for? Uh, attitude about the whole thing. Yeah, he's very hesitant. He's very hesitant to repeat the same mistakes as his father. Yeah, but then he'll turn around and he'll be like, no, I got to be the one to get in here and do the killing. And he does the killing up close and personal when when he when he's involved with it. Right, because he doesn't want to see large swaths of his, his men die either. Right. And that's why he doesn't want to lead a giant siege on that castle in France. Right, right. And so there's a sense that I mean, the truth is the whole Salat claim, the whole, just like his father before him, his claims to power, his claims to legitimacy are really tenuous. It comes down to what can I do? And the only way that he's mm-hmm. able to get that claim is to, in essence, say that, well, I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it for all of you guys, too. And anyone who doesn't come and do it yeah. for all of you guys, too, is not really one of us. Exactly. And so there's a way in which, similar to Shakespeare, we do see war as a tool, war as a tool for those in power, but that he somehow is learning through this that it can be a tool for power that rather than might making right, might can be turned to the side of right, which in this case is some sort of proto-democratic, you know, pacifist figure that he 
that he is. Though in the end, he does straight up murder somebody. So yeah, I I don't want to lean too hard on the idea of him being pacifist. I'd say skeptical of of whether he's he's not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. He he feels like he is. He tells himself he is. He tells other people that he is, but he's straight up not a pacifist. No. But uh, but you make a really really good point though because that leads me to my second theme mm-hmm. that I found, and this comes. Right from, is it Princess Catherine, the, the French princess? Mm-hmm. She has a really, really good line in it, and that's my second theme. All monarchy is illegitimate. Henry the Fourth and Hal, they're both illegitimate. They have really no right to the thrones that they're trying to get, whether it's France or whether it's England. Who has the right to any throne? Mm-hmm. Or who has the right to inherit any throne? And I, I, I found that fascinating because that's kind of the underlying theme in this movie and also kind of in real life too. Like when it comes to monarchy, who has the right to say, I own this, this is, I'm entitled to this land because of my bloodline. Because when it comes down to it, aren't all bloodlines just the bloodlines of a usurper? Yes. So uh, basically the subtext of what she says is, you know, you know, I'm going to marry you, but don't expect me to love you. And I think the all monarchies legitimate is in that whole thing. And there's a sense in which she's saying, you could force me to marry you, but it's not really legitimate. And his answer to that is, well, I'm going to go kill this guy for you. And there's a sense in which if you do violence for the right reasons, in a way that violence legitimizes his claim on Fran, on Normandy, his claim on his claim on her as a bride. Right. That that's kind of right. the that that's kind of the idea. Yeah. And, which is weird for a character who's supposed to be. We are a peace-loving nation. Is the first. It was the last thing a diplomat says before. That's why we're destroying the other people. Gentlemen, you can't fight here. This is the war room. Exactly. All right. You wanted to talk about some gross stuff before we got into our recommendations. Yes. One of the things that disappointed me is the Timothy Chalamet is a good-looking guy. I am told. Sure. Uh, I, I have trouble telling this sometimes, but I'm not exactly face blind. But but if you look at pictures, like contemporary pictures of Hal, he's always in like an extreme profile. So you're only looking at him on his left side because in mm-hmm. the Battle of Shrewsbury, he takes an arrow to the face. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Does he survive this? Uh, he did survive. <laughs> yeah, he survived, uh, though okay. it was touch and go. It's really a, a sort of cutting edge medicine they they have a blacksmith who makes this tool to remove the arrow safely because they're not sure it can be removed safely and I, i've never seen this tool but didn't you say that you that there's a you saw it on some other netflix special or on some netflix thing they had on youtube yes this is going to be in one of my recommendations actually oh, okay and then they take i think it takes weeks they do this treatment where they like take honey honey's a, a, a good for preventing infection they take honey uh, soaked, uh, I guess, bandages for lack of a better thing, and they, they stuff it in the wound. It must have really hurt like the dickens. As it heals, they, they do it less and less. But we don't know how bad the scar was in the end because there's no pictures because apparently he's like, nope, just paint me from this side. So in my mind, he was horribly <laughs> scarred. You know, who, who knows? He didn't, he didn't live that long. There's this wonderfully disgusting, and I really hoped when we saw the the trailer, I really hoped that they would have that whole thing, and that he would sort of start off being this good-looking guy, and by the end, when we see him at the Battle of Agincourt, that like one of the things that ha- that gives him 
legitimacy, even though he's young, is he's got this horrible facial scar, so he must have looked like he... Like a chunk of his forehead just missing. Yeah, yeah, he could have looked like a... a like he was a great veteran of war. I guess he was a great veteran of war. And I wanted to see more. I want to see that gross stuff happen in the series. But there, and there's some beheadings and whatnot. But we didn't get to see that. No, we did not. In fact, the, the beheadings even were a little bit disappointing because, you know, everything is done with CG. There are no actual beheadings like there used to be in older movies. Like the good old days when they would actually behead people. The the good old days where they actually beheaded people. Like actors were so method that they said, no, you can actually behead me. I will lay my head down on this altar and chop my head off and I will pick it up and I will put it back on. Sir Gawain in the Green Knight style. So I have never seen Ben-Hur, the movie Mm Ben-Hur. And the reason I've never seen it is that I do not like to watch movies in which actual people died in the filming and they left the death in there and someone really died mm-hmm. in the chariot race. Uh, and so, really? yeah. So I have sort of as an ethical choice for me, I, uh, which I know it's very precious to have this kind of, uh, <laughs> of all the things, this is the thing I draw the line at, but like, I guess if like I saw if his family said, please watch this, it's his great last great work. I'd be like, all right. Uh, but yeah, so I've never seen Ben-Hur. So there is at least one movie in which it is true that someone dies in the way that it's depicted on the screen. I guess the same is true for that Twilight Zone so, movie, too. I was about to say, so you've probably never seen Twilight Zone, the movie. Then. No, I saw that movie and only after the fact did I find out what it ha- found out what had happened. And uh, I, if I had known that in advance, yes. I wouldn't have seen it. Uh, yes, it's it's pretty tragic and gross. It's it's there's some serious ethical violations that went on during the filming of that movie. Read up on it, people. Educate yourself. No, no British noblemen were harming harmed in the filming of this movie. Uh, would would be what they'd say for the king, as far as I know. Yes. Well, you know, historically, uh, King Charles the what was he the sixth? The sixth. Yeah, King yes. Charles the sixth of France. He was mentally ill and thought he would he believed himself to be made of glass and he was afraid he'd break and they had to like sew these rods into his clothing to protect him he kind of wanted to have an exoskeleton i'd like to see a movie that is a science fiction version of this where he they develop a steampunk uh exoskeleton for charles the (laughs) sixth and uh he comes out in the battle of agincourt and just like starts tossing people around that's what i want to (laughs) see This is why he did not fight in the battles like uh, mm-hmm. Hal did. And I also heard he had to sleep or he laid under heavy blankets all day because he was so afraid that he would shatter. Yes. Yeah. He was really afraid of shattering. Yeah. But, uh, let's let's get into recommendations sure. because I this is yes, this is really getting into the one or the stuff you're talking about is getting into one of my recommendations. Mm-hmm. The first recommendation I want to talk about is uh, the real story behind Timothy Chalamet's Henry V. This is a Netflix crash course in history. Netflix has been really, really good lately about releasing YouTube companion pieces whenever they have a movie or a TV series or a mini series that they release on their platform. And they can be you know, behind the scenes or mini interviews with the cast and crew. But for the king, they have a very small little crash course in history. And this is about Henry V and slightly some about his father, Henry Bollinger, which is how I knew um, his full name, and also some about Charles VI, also known as the Mad King, 
who, like you said, was mentally ill and did believe himself to be made of glass and had to lay under a blanket, needed all sorts of protection. But it it gives a, a very short history lesson on the claim to the English throne as well as the claim to the French throne. Talks a little bit about Salic law, but not too much. But also the illegitimacy of the line of Henry IV and Henry V. And it's really, really fascinating. So I recommend you go to YouTube and search for uh, the real story behind Timothy Chalamet's Henry V. We'll have that in our show notes. Um, That's my first recommendation. Uh, The second recommendation I have is called, this day is called the Feast of St. Crispin. And that is by Kyle Colgren of Browse Held High, which is a YouTuber I've been following for a number of years now. And this is his breakdown of the St. Crispin's Day speech in Henry V, which again is missing from the movie, but uh, is in a lot of other Henry V adaptations. And this one focuses on um, the one with, uh, is it Laurence Olivier? Yes, it's Laurence Olivier. And it is uh, really, really good. And you should watch it. I, I really like this one. And then my final recommendation is season three of The Crown dropped on Netflix just a few weeks ago. It is December, but this dropped in November. And the reason why I'm recommending this is because we're talking so much about Henry V being an illegitimate heir to the throne. Not so much that Elizabeth II, who is currently sitting on the English throne right now, Doc and I are both Americans, so we really don't have much stake in what goes on over uh, on the English throne. Neither Henry V nor Elizabeth II really expected to be monarchs in their time. Certainly Elizabeth II, her father's brother abdicated and her father became king. And then when he died, she became queen. That was unexpected to her family line as far as the crown portrays her. The entire series is is phenomenal. The acting is great. This year, Olivia Colman, or this season rather, Olivia Colman portrays Elizabeth, and she is phenomenal. I, I really just enjoy Olivia Coleman and everything that she's in, including Fleabag. I, I thought I was not going to like Fleabag, but it turns out, no, that's that's really good. And Olivia Coleman plays a really, really, really terrible character. I'm recommending The Crown Season 3. So I want to recommend actually a book first, which is uh, by Stephen Mulberger, who is a retired professor. He might be a professor emeritus from uh, Nipissing University. And he wrote a book called Formal Combats in the 14th Century. And there's a lot of formal combat uh, here in, in the king. And, of course, the king is very, very early 15th century. But I think if you read Formal Combats in the 14th Century, you'll, you'll see what you'll, – you'll get a sense, a broader sense of, like, how that violence was very personal and very political very often. And it sounds very – you know, uh, Mulberger's a really – respected professor, but also he spent a lot of time with the Society for Creative Anachronisms, many years, doing actual combat himself. And so he's written with in mind both audiences, the academic audience and just guys who like to go out on weekends and hit each other with swords. And they and so it's written in a very accessible way. I think it's uh, $4, uh, $3.99. You can find it on Amazon and uh, Apple Books, etc., and that is uh, formal combats in the 14th century. And then a little bit more fun, Good Tickle Brain has something called, sometimes she calls it 
three panel Shakespeare, sometimes stick figure Shakespeare. I think she's starting to do stick figure Shakespeare nowadays because it doesn't uh, require to have three panels. But basically she tells Shakespeare plays with little stick figures and they're, they're droll and amusing and a lot of fun. It's the kind of nerd joke that doesn't take you, you know, 20 minutes of reading to get to. It's literally like a three panel comic strip with stick figures. Uh, And you can find that at goodticklebrain.com. And then I guess the last thing is a, is a plug. Uh, I appeared recently. I cheated on you. I'm afraid appeared as a guest. Yes. In the bean pot podcast the bean pot podcast and i accidentally missed you need to tell people yes what you called it i and apologize i accidentally to adam so yes so adam drinkwater the host was telling me that he about the bean pot podcast and in fact he asked me to be on it and i said i would but it hadn't been released yet so he he gave me a copy of the introductory the zero episode which is like a three minute sort of introduction to it And then afterwards, I talked to him about it and I'd forgotten. I didn't think it was called the Bean Pot Podcast. I thought it was called the P, P E A, the P Pot Podcast. And so Mm -hmm. I uh, accidentally called it the P Pot Podcast, which of course he heard as the P E E Pot Podcast, as Mm -hmm. in a podcast about chamber pots. And I do generally. Just like chamber pots, just like a real, real peapot, I stink up the place while I'm there, uh, on there. But uh, I'm on, I think, episode three or four of the Bean Pot podcast. Uh, I have to say it very carefully from now Good. on. But I have to admit, I have on several occasions in conversation since then accidentally called it again the other name, which I will try not to repeat now. <laughs> Pop Medieval gets a mention on that episode. Thank you, Adam. That's true. And he talks, uh, we talk about you a little bit. Very, very little. I think you're, you're vaguely alluded to. Yes, I know. I got my name mentioned. Yes, I appreciate that. So I could, I could have told all your deep, dark secrets there, but I chose not to. Uh, You'd be left without a pot to piss in. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, with that, we'll, uh, we'll end this uh, (laughs) so that uh, Engineer Mike doesn't go mad trying to edit this whole huge thing. Till next time, West Through Hall, Nina. West Through Hall, Doc. Pop Medieval was recorded in our Nerdgiven studios. Your hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. Our music is courtesy of Dr. John Jinry. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash popmedieval. That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash popmedieval. Thank you for listening. Uh, oh, so I got to start it, right? You, you've got to, yes. I always you've forget. You've got to hot me. Okay, I'll hot. You always forget I, to hot me. I know, me. I know. I honestly expect the music to start, and then I'll start talking afterward. There we go. All right.